You're watching Global BC. This is Global News Hour at 6. Good evening and thanks for joining us. Thousands of people gathered today for a somber procession and regimental funeral for Constable Rick O'Brien, killed in the line of duty last month. The Langley Event Centre was packed as O'Brien's friends and family shared stories of a big, lovable character who was living his dream of being a Mountie. Catherine Urquhart reports. It was a sea of red surge as hundreds of grieving RCMP members came together for the regimental funeral of 51-year-old Rick O'Brien, a husband and father of six. Pipers led the procession with Constable O'Brien's body carried in the hearse behind. Joining them were thousands of other first responders. Many members of the public lined the streets in support. My heart's broken for um, his wife and children and family and for everybody it's just so sad. Also part of the somber procession, the riderless horse with boots reversed in the stirrups. A symbolic reminder that the officer will never ride again. O'Brien served with Ridge Meadows RCMP and was killed September 22nd while executing a drug-related search warrant in Coquitlam. Two other officers were also injured. 25-year-old Nicholas Bellamare has been charged with one count of first-degree murder and one count of attempted murder with a firearm. Inside the Langley Event Center, family placed white roses on the fallen officer's casket. And there were heartfelt tributes to O'Brien, who became a Mountie about seven years ago after being a youth and mental health worker. One of the reasons Rick wanted to become a police officer was because he wanted to show kids that police officers were there to help and that they could be trusted. He had a special place in his heart for children. As soon as he was allowed, Rick would attend events on his own time to speak with kids while he was in uniform. We hurt now because we loved him. We will continue to hurt because we loved him and we will heal because we love them. Messages from O'Brien's family were read by a friend. I always knew you were my gift from the universe, exactly what me and the kids needed. You not only loved me, you loved my kids as if they were your own, and for that, we are all left more enriched and better for it. Constable O'Brien was remembered as someone who made a difference. Early in his career, he received the Award of Valor. Despite the inherent danger, of confronting armed suspects, a small team of members quickly formulated a plan and made entry to the residence. They rescued four adults and a child. I'm devastated by this tragic loss and outraged that one more police officer was killed in the line of duty. Described as young at heart, with a heart of gold, the much-loved fallen officer received his final salute. Catherine Urquhart, Global News. And if you would like to express your condolences to the family of Constable Rick O'Brien, you can email the RCMP. If you'd like to support the family, there is a GoFundMe set up by the National Police Federation Benevolent Foundation. Well, the latest chapter in the seemingly endless story of a chronic violent offender is sparking more calls for urgent change to the justice system. Ramina Dea has the latest on the repeated release of a man with a long criminal record. Mohammed Majidpour's case highlights a broken justice system which is not serving the public 
or helping the accused. Majidpour walked out of jail in his socks, his personal belongings stuffed in a see-through plastic bag. The 36-year-old repeat violent offender was released again, this time by a community court judge. Majidpour is facing one count of failing to report to a probation officer. There is a publication ban in effect, so we cannot publish the details of what happened in court. But we can tell you Majidpour's release conditions. One, report to a bail supervisor, and two, attend the downtown community court mental health program or elsewhere as directed and participate in assessments, counseling and treatment, but only if you consent to treatment. Majidpur has more than 30 prior convictions, including assault and assault with a weapon. Earlier this year, he pleaded guilty to hitting a 19-year-old Asian student over the head with a pole in a random racist attack in September 2022. Hours later, he torched a car. Majidpur was sentenced to one day in jail with credit for time served. Well, there just aren't any consequences for these kinds of actions. There are a, r a range of, of initiatives that the province uh, could actually uh, undertake. Uh, it starts by uh, directing Crown prosecution to uh, in ensure that they're pursuing detention uh, in every single one of these kinds of cases, uh, not suggesting uh, that that happened, but actually directing Crown Prosecution to do it. Uh, the Premier talks a good game on this, but clearly uh, the action that's needed is just not uh, matching the words that we keep hearing. So what happens next? Who will ensure Majidpur attends programming? Where will he live? It's unclear. His next court appearance is Thursday. Romina Dea, Global News. We are now one month into the school year and some students in Surrey still aren't in their proper classrooms. Overcrowding is an ongoing problem in the fast-growing city and this year things seem even worse with one school using its gym and staff room for the overflow. Janet Brown reports. These are some of the nine portable classrooms outside Walnut Road Elementary in Surrey's Fleetwood neighborhood, getting the final touches before students move into them next week. Up until now, every available space in the school, including the gym and staff room, have been used as classroom space. It's crazy enough that it's impacting our kids. If they don't have the proper learning environment, it's difficult <laughs> to say what the future is going to look like. The school board says using gym space to accommodate school overcrowding is not uncommon and even with portable some schools may end up having to turn away new students. There will come a time when we just don't have room for any more children and it seems to be almost at that point right now sort of at the tipping point that where are we going to put them. And with more construction of condos just south of Walnut Road Elementary, there could be an even bigger demand on the school next year. Surrey is the largest and fastest growing school district in the province. There are roughly 2,500 more students this September compared to a year ago. Right now, there are 380 to 400 portables. That's about 50 more than last September. The Surrey Teachers Association says the overcrowding at Walnut Road also has a ripple-down impact on teachers. They've told us that the morale is really low. They're feeling really beaten down this early in the year. Parents have launched a petition demanding action from the province. There are two goals for the petition. One is a short-term goal to have the portables functional, and then one is a long-term goal to know what the long-term 
expansion plans are not just for our school, but the schools in the area, the elementary schools and the high school. We've reached out to the education ministry, but haven't heard back. Janet Brown, Global News. That's not the only case of overcrowding. The demand for childcare in the city of Vancouver far exceeds the number of available spots. And now, City Council has directed staff to look into prefabricated construction to quickly create more spaces. As Grace Key reports, councillors want to see staff housing included in the projects as well. It's being called an innovative solution to help meet the desperate need of childcare and housing. The city of Vancouver is looking into prefabricated construction that combines childcare with housing above. This would speed up availability by months or even years. We have to think innovatively in a time when we have so little uh, land available, we have so much pressure on our workforce in terms of the cost of living, and that huge pressure on childcare. So many people need childcare right now. It's really, it's a make or break situation for people to actually live in the city is whether they have childcare or not. Vancouver City Councillors Mike Klassen and Lisa Dominato introduced the motion. Housing would be available for early childcare educators and essential workers who would have gone through a background check. Financial support would be needed from the province and BC Housing. Currently, the, uh, the province has what's called the New Spaces Fund, which is to fund actual childcare spaces, so that's the employees. BC Housing obviously would have to be a key partner, so we're talking about provincial support for construction and for operations. The City of Vancouver provides land, and so really at the end of the day, we have land in a, uh, in a, in a land bank. The idea expands on existing modulars and integrated land use. Kelowna's YMCA Childcare is a modular building next to a high school. Vancouver's Crosstown Elementary is integrated with a condo tower. What I love about this opportunity is that it's about doing things differently. We can't keep on doing things the same way. We have underutilized land. So we do need to materially build new uh, facilities and new capacity and spaces because it is very difficult for families to participate fully and economically um, and to live in a city when it often requires two incomes and uh, having access to childcare is a really important part of that. The motion was passed unanimously. Staff will work with the school board to find public land use for these spaces. Priority would be given to communities that have the most shortages of childcare spaces. Non-profit childcare providers would operate the facilities on the city's behalf. Grace Key, Global News. It's estimated that the city of Vancouver right now has a shortage of about 15,000 child care spaces as demand continues to grow. Tension between embattled nonprofit housing provider Atira and the city of Vancouver seems to be lessening. Councillors voted today to reinstate thousands of dollars in grants as the housing operator continues to work to build back public trust. Cassidy Moscone reports. It was told to clean up its act. We are at a different stage now. We are absolutely at a different place. Embattled housing provider Atira giving an update on its operations 100 days on from the release of a scathing audit which found a culture of mismanagement had been left to fester under the watchful eye of a CEO embroiled in a conflict of interest investigation. Her husband, the former BC housing boss... I want to feel safe when I go to work. While employees made claims of harassment and unsafe working conditions. 
We have really realized that we have to regain trust. And what has changed is maybe the rigor around how we are conducting the business of providing housing in a way that serves the community and the governance. Atira says it has introduced a code of conduct, created a whistleblower hotline focused on improving employees' experience with occupational health and safety amongst a raft of reviews and changes. So does that translate um, to tangible change? Atira is uh, permanently shifted the way it's going to show up in the community. That's a commitment. Workers want more. We're not seeing the progress that we need to see. So... Fundamentally, we need to see these workers moved into the community health agreement. We need to see better work on training uh, new and casual hires. We need to see the overdose prevention training come into place. And we need to see a firm commitment from management to gender pay equity. After freezing all funding in May, tensions between Etira and the city of Vancouver appear to be thawing, with councillors unanimously voting to approve nearly $800,000 in grants to the embattled housing provider. From embattled to empowered, it will need its employees on board. Cassidy Mosconi, Global News. Teeing up an idea that could help Vancouver's housing crisis. The debate over the future of the city's three public golf courses. And why some say it's time to put that land to much better use in just over a minute. No treat this Halloween. Why the Stanley Park ghost train is gathering cobwebs instead. Later, plus. Some exhibitions can take years. The art of pulling off a successful exhibit and all the things you might not have considered coming up. Right now, though, housing advocates are once again looking at golf courses as a source of land for housing. Some argue that the money made off the sale of city-owned golf courses could be used to pay for non-market and below-market housing. Aaron MacArthur has this story. No matter the weather, the tee boxes at Langara Golf Course usually full. The Vancouver Public Course, one of the busiest in the country, surrounded on all sides by development steps away from the Canada line. There are academics who say the city is missing out on the land's true potential, proposing a mix of housing and park space. We have a housing crisis. There's, there's insufficient park space in that part of the city. Patrick Condon believes one of the key drivers of housing unaffordability is the price of land. The land at Langara, if valued fairly, would be worth billions of dollars. If the city plowed it under for a combination of housing and park space, it could be a significant source of affordable homes. Our proposal was to do it the same way in terms of your objective as False Creek South, which was one-third social housing, one-third middle-class housing, and one-third market housing. Other housing policy experts think it's a reasonable discussion to have, but aren't convinced turning golf courses into housing is needed when most of Vancouver remains zoned exclusively for single-family homes. We effectively ban apartments on most of our residential land. So for a start, I would say let's stop banning apartments before we start building on green spaces. While people argue golf courses are elitist and amount to an exclusive park for just a handful of users, the city provides data that suggests otherwise. In 2002, Fraserview, Langara and McCleary saw more than 70,000 rounds each. The three facilities contributed $3 million to the Park Board budget. Park Board Commissioner Tom Digby says the green space 
hosts a wide variety of benefits. These golf courses are sources of biodiversity in the city. Um, they are huge assets. I mean, there's a, a extremely valuable to have golf courses in our cities. Other cities have converted underutilized golf courses into housing, but in Vancouver, with or without the housing crisis, the golf courses unlikely to be targeted for future development anytime soon. Aaron MacArthur, Global News. Vancouver Council has approved increasing the rental rates for projects built under an affordable housing program. The city launched the Moderate Income Rental Housing Pilot Program back in 2017. It gives developers incentives to build projects where 20% of the units are rented out at below market rates. The program received 60 applications, but only 16 went ahead. And so far, none has been completed. City staff say developers face challenges securing project financing due to the program's rental constraints. Today, Council unanimously approved changes that increases the rents under the program, although rates are still below market. I will support it because we need to continue to do everything that we can to get the units through, and it's both delivering the units, but also being sensitive to the affordability piece. These below rental units, I would much prefer that we weren't needing to shift the affordability levels to get them built. Um, but this is a program where we're working within the market and we know those construction costs, those financing costs are all going up. Council also approved changes to simplify and streamline the program's development application process in order to reduce red tape and speed up project construction. A new development in Kelowna is aimed at helping younger generations get into the real estate market with units far below the provincial average price. Ground broken today on a project called Revo, which will offer everything from 314 square foot studio suites to small townhomes. The smallest units start in the upper $200,000 range. Although they may not live in this home for the next 20 years, it enables them a stepping stone where they can get into the housing market, you know, uh, participate in that equity growth, and then springboard to, let's say, a townhouse and then eventually a single-family house. A similar development under construction across from Revo sold out in just three days. A new study indicates consumer spending habits at the grocery store are changing to help lower the bills. Global's Brittany Rosen shows us the choices people are making and why some are concerned about the potential health impact. Yeah, it's, the food is outrageous, yeah. So um, I'm shopping more regularly now, trying to find the deals. What was once a mundane task is now a strategic bargain hunt for many grocery shoppers. New research by the Dalhousie Agri-Food Analytics Lab, which surveyed 5,000 Canadians, shows consumers have been shifting the way they shop. Over 60% have altered their spending habits, turning to coupons and loyalty programs. 64% are buying generic brands over national brands. And 59% are more inclined to visit discount stores, including dollar stores, something many worry could have long-term health implications. What we're seeing is that over half of Canadians are actually prioritizing costs over nutrition, which is pretty significant. 
Food woes persist as Canadians prepare to celebrate Thanksgiving. Despite inflated prices at grocery stores like this one, a number of shoppers that we spoke to say that they're not going to cut back for Thanksgiving. They're going to continue to serve the bird and all of the fix-ins. Are you cutting back in any way? No, trying to do it with family the same. More expensive, but you know, you only do it once a year. And there's so many things to, to be thankful for, no matter how the cause of everything went up. In a post-pandemic era, some families feel the need to continue the tradition of large gatherings. However, guests may be more inclined to help the host. What we're seeing are hosts uh, not not hesitating to ask people to bring food and create some sort of a family potluck. He adds this year, don't expect the leftovers to go to waste as people will make the most of their Thanksgiving grocery bill. Brittany Rose in Global News. Coming up, controversy over public drug consumption. That further entrenches us in stigma. This will kill people. Why some Vancouver drug users don't like new legislation that limits where they can use. Plus, an historic family-run farmer's market goes up in flames. Good evening. Final clearing stages of a stall over here northbound, just at the north end of the Patello Bridge. It's now off to the right shoulder. Select Sussex Insurance and make a difference when you renew your auto plan online. Select your neighborhood Sussex Insurance location when prompted and help support Diabetes Canada exclusively at Sussex Insurance. I'm Trishy Wisson in Global One at the Patello Bridge. Police are recommending charges after 65 kilograms of cocaine were seized from a vehicle attempting to cross the Canada-U.S. border. It happened on July 16th at the Pacific Truck Crossing in Surrey. A detector dog sniffed out four suspicious boxes on a truck destined for Calgary. The driver, an Edmonton man, was arrested and taken into custody. The narcotics also seized. The BCRCMP is now recommending several criminal charges under the Controlled Drugs and Substances Act. Now, BC's controversial experiment in drug decriminalization is about to get even more contentious. As Richard Zussman reports, a battle is already shaping up over the government's next step to restrict public drug use. It's banned on school grounds and playgrounds. And now the Vancouver area network of drug users is asking the province to be cautious about where it restricts drug use next. So we are seeing OPSs, we're seeing harm reduction being attacked and rolled back all across the nation. Beaches, community centers and libraries are all public spaces where hard drugs can legally be used. And new rules coming from the province are expected to change that. It's not a reason to use drugs, use hard drugs in playgrounds or in, uh, in front of stores and doorway of stores and other places. What we need to do is ensure that we continue to have initiatives that keep people safe. Earlier this year, a decriminalization pilot was kicked off in BC. It ensures drug users are not arrested or charged for possessing small amounts of hard drugs. But Vandu is worried this new legislation will work against that policy. Using language that demonizes our community, that further entrenches us in stigma, this will kill people and we have to fight back. The province continues to invest in overdose prevention sites. There are four in Victoria alone, but there are calls for more locations like this one being desperately needed. What's critical is that we keep people alive and that means um, overdose prevention and that's the purpose of the decriminalization. 
BC United has asked repeatedly for the government to support businesses impacted by open drug use and respond to parents concerned about safety in their communities. The entire decriminalization pilot project has, has been a, a failure. We've seen an increase in overdoses during this entire time. Uh, so, uh, you know, pretty disappointing that uh, communities were forced to kind of deal with this on their own for so long. The province is expected to unveil the updated legislation on Thursday. Richard Zussman, Global News, Victoria. The community of Cassidy, just south of Nanaimo on Vancouver Island, has lost one of its anchor businesses and a popular stop-in for travellers. Fire destroyed the Cassidy Farm Market in the early hours of the morning. Luckily, no one was hurt, but the building appears to be all but destroyed. The market has been a popular destination and gathering point for decades, and its loss is a blow to the entire community. We watch customers grow up uh, here, so I think there are a lot of great memories. Uh, my kids worked here uh, in, in, when they were growing up. Uh, the Johnsons and their kids uh, worked here as well, so uh, a lot, lot of memories for both our families. And um, Yeah, we're, we're, we're really sad to see it uh, have to end this way. Right now, I'm just heartbroken for the owners because they're community members and we all love them and care about them and yes it is gonna suck too I mean it was the end of the season but it's a easy jaunt over to get some fresh fruits and vegetables the local fire department says the fire doesn't appear to be suspicious but an investigation is underway to determine what caused it the owners say they're not sure at this point if they will rebuild up next lifting the ban on grizzly hunting we shouldn't be making policy decisions on wildlife management based on popular opinion. A BC First Nation pushes back on a poll that suggests the ban should stay in place. Also tonight, the baby clothes being recalled at Walmart due to, a safe, due to safety hazards. Traffic is steady both ways tonight at the Alex Fraser Bridge. Just some leftover volume as usual on the east-west connector between Knight and the S-curve through Richmond. Contact Kermac for expert windshield repair and replacement services while supporting Kermac Cares for Kids. Kermac is celebrating 50 years of collision and auto glass services, and that's no accident. I'm Trish Jewison in Global One at the Alex Fraser Bridge. A new poll shows a large majority of British Columbians want to see the ban on the grizzly bear trophy hunt made permanent. But as Global's Jennifer Palmer reports, the support is not unanimous. And a northern B.C. First Nation wants its opinion to be heard. The grizzly, an animal revered for its might and legend. It's also an animal of concern for the province of British Columbia as the NDP banned hunting grizzlies in 2017. Now a poll shows British Columbians would like it made law. There hasn't been a law that was passed enshrining this forever. And I think part of what we see from the public is if you're going to start reconsidering something like this ban, maybe it's time to actually have a law that has a little more teeth into it. The poll done by Research Co. for Pacific Wildlife had 1,000 British Columbians take part this past September. It found 84% of British Columbians do not approve of sport or trophy hunting of grizzly bears. The poll also shows 77% think it's time for the province to pass a law ensuring the ban on grizzly hunting stays in place. This as the province looks for feedback on its grizzly bear stewardship framework. 
They say it's to improve conservation efforts and identify knowledge gaps. We uh, are doing a review of the framework. It's about uh, grizzly bear stewardship. It's not about uh, bringing back the hunt. The grizzly bear ban is... Uh completely counterproductive. Indigenous people have a right to hunt grizzlies and for some, like the Taltan Nation, they say there are other reasons beyond food, cultural and ceremonial ones. We shouldn't be making policy decisions on wildlife management based on popular opinion. We should be referring back to the science, the local knowledge, the Indigenous knowledge. According to data from the province, it shows the biggest threat to grizzlies is human development. We're hoping to get uh, a, a sense from the public about how we might improve a stewardship of grizzly bears. The BC government is currently asking for your feedback on its draft grizzly bear stewardship framework. The deadline is October 6th. Jennifer Palma, Global News. The BC SPCA has seized 11 animals from a piece of land in the Kootenays. In mid-September, the RCMP alerted the SPCA to a person squatting on Crown land who had several animals with them that were in distress. Nine dogs and two cats were found tied to nearby trees with limited food and dirty water. They were taken to a vet where they're being treated for various infections. The SPCA says the person at the site had previously been banned for life from owning animals in other provinces, and they are recommending new charges. Walmart is recalling the brand of baby and kids sleepers because of choking and ingestion hazards. The George sleeper, like the one pictured here, is on the recall list for sizes 0 to 5T. Health Canada says the zipper pulls and foot grips may fall off or be removed through repeated washing, and that can be dangerous. As of September 21st, the company has not received any reports of any injuries, but if you have one, stop using it and return it to Walmart for a full refund. Stuck at the station. Coming up, why it's a trick once again and no treat for those who love the Stanley Park ghost train. And in sports, how the postseason ends almost as quickly as it began for the Blue Jays. From protecting small business gems to outing big business bullies, if it matters to consumers, it matters to investigative reporter Andrua. Consumer Matters with Andrua on Global News. Well, for the fourth year in a row, the Stanley Park Ghost Train won't be running this Halloween season. Last year, the annual event was cancelled just five days before it was supposed to start. After the miniature railway failed a safety inspection, it hasn't run since. The Ghost Train was also derailed by the pandemic in 2020 and concerns around aggressive coyotes in the park in 2021. The park board says parts have arrived and repair work is underway with the goal of getting the train back in service in November. As long as it gets back in service, eventually. A lot of people are clamoring for it, no doubt about it. Uh, okay, could be a beautiful weekend to do anything outdoors. Before we get there, we got a couple of days to go. Here's Christy.
It's really interesting. It's like a carbon copy to this past weekend where it looks like the first two days of the long weekend are going to be fairly nice and then the last day or Monday will be rainy. And I always, as a mother, enjoy that last day being a little rainy to sort of calm things down a little bit. Beautiful shot looking towards UBC with the sun setting there. That's a stunning shot. We did have a fair amount of cloud cover today and we're expecting that again tomorrow morning despite the fact that actually majority of the area have actually seen the clouds clear. But what we're going to see and which is uh, often happens this time of year is we're going to see low level cloud and some fog redevelop overnight as temperatures cool and we get that condensation lower towards the ground. So we'll see that tomorrow morning but we are expecting a clearing trend with sunshine later on in the day. We do have uh, some cloud cover and a few showers in the forecast still for the Caribou Central Interior region is just a finger of rainfall that will shift into those regions through the next 24 hours before that ridge of high pressure builds and most of the province expecting sunshine for our region we are going to see that ridge of high pressure. It shouldn't be moons there. I'm not really sure why that's happened there, but you get the idea. Clearer skies before that drop in temperature is expected. All right, so there's your forecast for tomorrow, everyone. Periods of rain across the north coast and a few showers into the Caribou Central Interior. Any of the cloud cover from Kamloops South and across the south coast would be just through the morning hours. A bit of fog or low-level cloud and then clearing at least by late morning hours. And then sunshine for the next couple of days. Late Sunday is when we'll see increasing cloud. At this point, the timeline for the rainfall will be Sunday night and then on and off into our Monday. Tonight's center windows weather window comes to you from Port McNeil. Chris Knight sharing that sh shot with us. Beautiful sunrise shot. Thanks to Chris for that one. Very cool. Thanks very much, Christy. All right, Squire is here now. What have you got for us coming up, Squire? Well, the uh, Vancouver Canucks are in Abbotsford. The Vancouver Whitecaps are at BC Place tonight. The Lions will be at BC Place later in the week, and the Jays are on vacation. That's what's coming. <laughs> That's it. That's the shortest sportscast ever. Yeah, good point. <laughs> All right, thanks, Squire. Also ahead tonight. That one moment where we're actually hanging the artwork is the coup de grace. The many steps and challenges to pulling off a successful show at the art gallery. Hard on the outside, soft on the inside. Is yeah, that yeah, was, we were talking like about. Me. Yeah, just like <laughs> Sophie and Squire as well. I think most humans are actually. Yeah, when you think about it, yeah, you might be right. Um, physically, anyway. Um, now, seven o'clock, which I guess is not that far away. In Abbotsford, the uh, Canucks will face Seattle, second to last exhibition game. Now, the initial feeling was the Vancouver Canucks would play pretty close to an NHL roster for its fans in Abbotsford. But Elias Pettersson is sick. He's not going to play. Quinn Hughes won't play. J.T. Miller won't play. Thatcher Demko won't play. So it's not quite as NHL as we were first led to believe. As for the Whitecaps, they're home tonight against St. Louis SC, which is an expansion team, but also the best team in the West. They score a lot of goals. They beat the Caps earlier this year, 3-1. That game was in St. Louis. Now, this is a game the Whitecaps need. They're in a playoff spot right now, but you want to strengthen yourself. 
They've gone four straight without a win. Last two games were ties. They should have won those games. But this one's not going to be easy. The question, though, is how did an expansion team, I know we asked this of Vegas a few years ago in the NHL, how did an expansion team become so good so fast? I think St. Louis, my opinion, is the success, really success story of MLS uh, doing the, the, the way that I, I would say a, t a club should uh, do things in MLS in the sense that they were aligned from day one on what their identity was going to be. They didn't care about uh, going for fancy players or, or uh, big names, but with players that were, uh, I would say, functional to their project. They gave uh, uh, carte blanche to their coach that, for me, is the coach of the year. So I think that uh, we need to really say chapeau to them because they did a fantastic uh, um, uh, season. When you do things like this, luck is going to help you because it's not even luck, even quality, because at the end, if you see they are the, the team that is, they had the highest differential between the XG created and the actual goal scored. It's enormous. It's like 20 or 22 goals more than the XG that they created. So someone could say that it's luck. I don't, I don't think it's luck. I think it's believing in a project and quality at the end. So I think we need to be on our best behavior in order to try to win games. The BC Lions are expecting a big crowd on Friday night for the biggest game of the season so far. Winnipeg is in town to basically decide who wakes up Saturday morning as a first-place team in the West. This one is hard to predict because the times they've played each other this year, they've been very different games. It was a 50-point landslide of points that buried the Lions at the bottom of a football dog pile. Certainly not the kind of effort in a first-place showdown. And yes, when you lose like BC did, it definitely leaves a mark. Uh, you never want nobody to score uh, a touchdown on you in general. You put up 50 points, that's embarrassing. I was embarrassed, you know, uh, I'm pretty sure TJ was embarrassed. Uh, our defense was embarrassed, you know. Uh. It happened, you know, and once it happened, I mean, with victimhood is not, not where we want the neighborhood we want to live in, you know. Um, we want to live in a solution hood where we're finding solutions to the problems. Um, anytime, you know, um, you become a victim to a situation, it's not going to help you. So, I mean, it happened. Um, I love the, the line it up factor of football. You know, you got to prove yourself every time, every week. So, yeah, we beat it. We were playing good football in June. We lost to them whenever we played them again. So now it's fall ball. So who are we in the fall? And that's what we got to come and show. Fall ball will hopefully look more like week three of the CFL season when the Lions went into Winnipeg and dominated the Bombers in a decisive 30-6 to victory where Vernon Adams Jr. was near perfect. Adams didn't play in the 50-point blowout loss due to injury, but he wasn't the only person missing in action for BC. In their first meeting, BC's defense sacked Zach Claro seven times and kept the Bombers out of their end zone. So it shouldn't come as a surprise how you beat Winnipeg in another battle for tops in the West. I didn't, hey, with Zach, uh, you know, the many times you get him on the ground, the better, right? You know, so try to eliminate him, getting the rhythm early. You know, when he starts out, you know, game six for six, I mean, you're going to be in for a long day. So, you know, get him on the ground early, eliminate the big plays. Obviously, you know, when he's out there making vertical throws, that presents a problem for everybody. If you if you call yourself the best, you need to be able to show up in these type of games. So for us, uh, that left a bad taste in our mouth, you know, uh, embarrassing feeling. And uh, we, we don't want to let each other down again. So we're trying to do everything we can not to let that happen. Well, this didn't go so well. The Blue Jays' best of three series against Minnesota. Bases are loaded, none out. 
And Carlos Correa brings in Royce Lewis, who hit two home runs in game one. Same inning, same situation, bases loaded. Yeah, it's a double play, but another run scores. So it's now 2-0. That's all the Twins would need. Look at this. Men on second and third. And Vlad Guerrero gets picked off at second. They went to the video replay. They said it was good. And that's the last out. And yes, the Twins win. They're on to the next series. And the Blue Jays are on to vacation. They thought it would be better this year. But then again, they say that a lot of times. Yeah. And it just doesn't end well. The Jays are who we thought they were. Where is Joe Carter when you need him? <laughs> Not present. Game-winning right. home runs. <laughs> Thanks, Squire. The art of creating an art exhibit. Squire goes behind the scenes at the Vancouver Art Gallery. Coming up next. Jordan Armstrong is here now to look ahead to Global News at 11. Jordan? Sophie, tonight, how British Columbians feel about the long-term health consequences of higher food prices. We know it's a national concern. We had a story earlier on that. But tonight, we'll have some numbers specific to B.C. Also, the Whistler parking stall that just sold for $195,000. At 11, what makes it so special and what the seller paid for the stall only six years ago? It is quite the profit, and we'll have the full story at 11, Sophie. You can set up a bed in there. And <laughs> oh, it's got a nice view. Yeah. Very cozy. You're looking for a new place, right? I am looking for a new place. There you go. There's a possibility. Thing. It comes with a parking space. It does. That's come the best part. Good heavens. Um, okay, so when it comes to art, there's the art, and then there's the art of setting up the art. There is a year-long exhibition of Emily Carr paintings and... I know I'm not very artistic drawings, very obviously, or <laughs> something like that. Okay. I, you know what I mean. Yeah. Anyway, it's at the Vancouver Art Gallery. What we wanted to know was, how do you put an exhibition together? And they were kind enough to show us. There is more to an art exhibition than just hanging paintings on a wall. It's kind of like producing a show. Well, some exhibitions can take years. Years? Um, yet the planning and everything this one was probably more on a like half year timeline and part of that time would have been used to choose which 24 Emily Carr works to display because the Vancouver Art Gallery has a lot to choose from 252 we have 252 Emily Carr objects so there's paintings there's ceramics there's watercolors um, there's sketches graphite so in this exhibition it's primarily oil on canvas. And it'll include the gallery's original Emily Carr piece. It's right here. Yes, this was the first, ex, um, first work that the gallery acquired in 1937. It's a painting from 1912. Um, it really depicts her first, her early trips. So she was an avid traveler, traveling through central and northern BC up to Haida Gwaii. And for each piece the gallery owns, there are experts who keep everything in the best condition possible by keeping track of even the most minute issues. So those little lines indicate what? Scratches? Cracks. Cracks. And, and little paint losses. They're really minute. Yeah. And um, this work was treated um, in the 1960s and is really stable, but sometimes changes, it does, it, they, uh, changes occur. Break down. Yes, they do. 
Now, we'd be remiss if we didn't go back to the beginning and talk about hanging the paintings because it too is an art and a science. It's not all just about getting the paintings level. All of the different artworks require different intensities of light. So uh, shadows can be an issue, and they also play tricks with the eye. So, so it's always the best fit. How many paintings you got at your house? Uh, I have about five up. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Okay. And they're not level. Oh, oh, the paintings in your house are not level? That's right. You don't take your work home. <laughs> yeah, I don't take my work home. Wow. wow. They don't use the iPhone level, then I... <laughs> no. It's good to know even he has some paintings at home that yeah. are, not, uh, are not level. <laughs> All right, uh, big day today. We were involved in some special coverage of the funeral of uh, Constable Rick O'Brien. We thank him for his service and everybody who watched that special and mm -hmm. obviously send our condolences to his family. And as we say goodnight, we leave you again with some sights and sounds from that memorial service. And I want to say thank you not only to the RCMP but to their families for supporting them to come out into the community to help us. knew that the presence of a smile in a uniform had the power to light up the eyes of a child or a person intimidated by the big man with a gun. <laughs>